Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Gen AI, Gen AI, Gen AI. The transformative technology has captured the imagination of everyone in the tech industry. Industries are shifting before our eyes, and the roles and responsibilities of data practitioners everywhere are going to shift again. The question is not whether an impact will be made, but rather how big and how fast. In this episode, Cindy sits down with three industry leaders to discuss how AI will impact our work and our personal lives in 2024. COO of Unstoppable Domains and Wilda AI Leader of the Year, Sandy Carter, shares how a severe injury in Brazil impacted her outlook on data sharing and data verification in a world where AI can convince millions that the Pope wears puffy jackets. President and co-founder of Sapphire Ventures, Jay Doss, sees a gap in educating technical workers if AI is too widely adopted. Global Head of Analytics and Insights at TCS, Prab Prachandi, shares how the financial... The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Industries will modernize in a heavily regulated environment. Our first guest, Jay Das, is the president and co-founder of Sapphire Ventures, a Silicon Valley powerhouse with 11 billion under management and 14 IPOs for its track record. Jay has a unique seat, seeing how the data industry will be impacted by Gen AI. Jay, welcome to the Data Chief. Cindy, thank you so much for having me. Likewise, where are you joining us from today? So today I'm working from home in Menlo Park. Uh, we actually uh, try to go into the office uh, four times a week, but today, Friday, is typically a day where we all work from home. So I'm joining you from Menlo Park in the Bay Area. Okay, nice. Well, I love following your tweets as you travel the world to all these hot startups You've been in the investment community for 17 years, at least. Tell us a little bit about your role at Sapphire Ventures. Yeah, so, you know, I'm one of the co-founders and the president of Sapphire Ventures. And, um, you know, we actually started this firm together with my colleague, Nino Marakovic. You know, back in the days, actually, we were part of SAP Ventures, and it took us four years to spin it out. Um, and, you know... We uh, ended up becoming an independent firm in 2011, in January of 2011. And then we have built it up, uh, you know, starting with a small fund of 350 million or so, and now manage over 11 billion. And in some ways, uh, we empathize with uh, entrepreneurs because we feel like we have been on this journey a little bit slower than maybe some of our entrepreneurs. But we have grown from five people and we spun out to about an almost 90 people in the firm right now, and, you know, as I said, managing over 11 billion. But more importantly, you know, know the journey of when you first start a company, how you need to incorporate the company, 
you know, you have to go find health insurance, right? That was like a yeah. very unique thing that you don't see. And I was the IT manager for the first uh, six months, which was a nightmare, not only for me, but for all my colleagues. Uh, so we have some empathy in and, and think that we also are entrepreneurs in some ways building up our firm. Yeah. And I do remember when it started as an arm within SAP. So it's been great to see the journey. I am trying to picture you now as an IT manager. Like, were you laying Ethernet cable and token ring cable and all this stuff or what? Uh, believe it or not, some of it, uh, we actually... So I have a development background. So I was a developer for the longest time before I went off, as my friends call on the dark side. Uh, but so I have done that in the past where I have actually put down uh, Ethernet cables and, you know, wired up uh, kind of laptops and things like that. Luckily, by the time we spun out, most of the stuff was in the cloud. So, you know, but things that you still had to worry about was who owns your domain name? Did you actually yeah. pay for your domain name? You know, how do you get your, uh, you know, outlook kind of going, right? Things like where do you back up your stuff? So those kind of stuff. So it wasn't as much infrastructure, but just, you know, the software and the security stuff around it. Yeah. And then for those who don't track the VC community as much, I feel like when you describe a company of 90 employees, it doesn't fully communicate the impact that Sapphire Ventures has had on just entire sectors of the tech industry. Do you want to share maybe some of your favorite companies that have either IPO'd or gone on for a big merger acquisition? Yeah, so I would say that there we have a lot of companies in the data analytics space, right? We have yeah. been investing in uh, data analytics for the longest time. And ThoughtSpot, of course, is one of our most favorite and I think groundbreaking company that we have invested in. But, you know, we have started investing in data all the way back from MySQL. So we were an investor and that was actually one of the first deals that I invested and managed uh, when I joined SAP Ventures before we spun out as Sapphire. I know, and I've seen the evolution of, of data analytics. Like if you go back, you know, and I'm dating myself, uh, you know, in the mid 2000s, People said that data was over. The four horsemen had been acquired, um, you know, things like business object. And people said, okay, there is no need for any other data company. Actually, people said there was no need for any other enterprise software company. And then over that time, you know, things have just exploded. Like if you go back and look at how much data and people talk about analytics and then machine learning now increasingly and in AI, you know, it's just incredible. And, and I think people you know, even 15 years ago, did not imagine how critical data and, you know, would be in running businesses and in our day-to-day -day life, right? Um, and some of the other ones that we have invested, you know, uh, I was a first serial, uh, first institutional investor in Altrix. And that was a whole category that we created um, with the help of the management team in the data prep area, right? And that was not something that people thought about was very exciting or, or needed. But when you go in, you know, even to this day, data prep is kind of this grunt work that all analysts and data scientists have to do and probably spend 60 to 70% of their time doing that. Yeah, wow. So I didn't realize that um, people were saying it was the end of data with the four horsemen, which uh, I would say it was business objects, Cognos and Oracle slash Hyperion, um, one after another. 
to me, it almost feels like our industry is at a rebirth, almost a renaissance, if you will. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. I think what generative AI has done for the industry, you know, is just, I, I don't think we have even scratched the surface, right? We're just talking about everything. Uh, but I think, you know, generative AI is going to get rid of a lot of the grunt work that we are, have to do day to day, including some of the grunt work in data prep, some of the grunt work that analysts have to do, or even understanding reports and dashboards. You know, the premise was always there, right? I think even when we got very excited was, hey, uh, you don't want to have a dashboard. You want to search your data like, you know, you would search at Google. Now, Sapphire Ventures has announced pledging a lot to fuel continued innovation in this space. Tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, first and foremost, when we pledged that, you know, what a billion dollar in commitment, a lot of it was, you know, we were actually thinking about not just new investments, because for us, one of the mantras or key objectives that we have is to be the most value-added investor on, you know, our portfolio company's cap table. And so we spend a lot of time actually uh, enabling our portfolio growth team, our strategy team to focus on, you know, generative AI and AI and how do you enable all our portfolio companies to start using generative AI. And interestingly, you know, what we found about 60% of uh, our portfolio companies were already using generative AI. You know, it just was not known as generative AI at that time, right? They were like using uh, AI with uh, LLMs, you know, on, on their on the unstructured data and getting results out of it. Uh, so that was the first thing. The second thing is what we believe that generative AI is like, you know, going to change our industry for the next 10 years. And, you know, we are in some ways disciplined investors. So we don't want, and, you know, we are growth stage investors. So we want to go find companies that are of scale, that are using generative AI with efficient business model. And that is what we are looking for. And we have not found a whole lot of companies in this year. Uh, and we're, that's why we spend a lot of time just helping on enabling our existing portfolio companies. But we think that, you know, in the next three, four years, some really, really groundbreaking companies are going to be started. And also some of our portfolio companies, we are going to invest in them as they go on the journey to kind of, you know, scale even greater heights uh, as they use and, and leverage generative AI to kind of change their business model. Yeah. So there's a couple things there, Jay, that I'd like to unpack. And I would say if I imagine our listeners, CDOs, heads of AI, CDAOs, they're thinking, how do I assess these startups? Because there are so many. And you talked about efficient growth. That has been, I would say, a shift in the landscape in in the last three years, really, when it was growth at all costs. I mean, my, my family didn't believe me that even Amazon was only profitable in the last two years. They're like, that's nuts. I'm like, yeah, that's growth at all costs. How would you say that a potential buyer of these solutions should think about this shift in the funding market? Look, I, I, we talked to a lot of enterprises, like just like you do with our customer um, you know, advisory kind of people and you know, the, the portfolio growth team talks to all these folks. And, and I think the enterprises are really 
on a journey, right? They are just scratching the surface. I think a lot of CDOs, like the ones you talk to, they all want to do something around generative AI because they're bored and their CEOs are saying, hey, go do something in generative AI because that's the new buzzword. I, I think if you are a CDO, I think you still have to evaluate each of these companies and see if it actually solves a critical problem. Just because they put a generative AI veneer on, on, a, on a product doesn't mean it is actually going to solve your, your issues. And you, know, and you kind of have to, as, a, as an enterprise, think about, okay, what does it mean? Like, how, what is access control? What is the security policy? What is the compliance? And I know all the CDOs are, are doing that. And I think their challenge is to keep the, their boards and the CEOs at bay and say that, hey, look, we are evaluating, we are trying to kind of find the right solutions with the right controls and compliance for a large enterprise and not just go chase, um, you know, anything that is out there, any startup. And in some ways, I think established companies, they have an advantage because, you know, CDOs are actually going to the companies that have they have relationships with that are providing a solution to ask, hey, how are you using generative AI to solve my problem? So I think that is where that is why we also think enabling our existing portfolio companies with generative AI is so critical because they already have the customer access, right? And if they can provide a solution, I think they have a better chance of selling than a new startup. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Microsoft, so we have to come back to the recent drama between Microsoft and OpenAI. And let's say last month, then Google coming out with Gemini. And looking at the governance of these boards, when there also is a fear that AI may be a risk to humanity, how does this come together? What's your view on making sure that we're competitive, but innovating fast in this industry? So first of all, I think the fear about all of this getting really smart and destroying the world, I think is really far-fetched. Um, I, I still think that all of the LLMs and all of these GPT-5 and all of these models, you know, they're great. They, they're, they're not really reasoning. They're not right. You know, they're kind of great at are getting some information and putting them in a new form. They're not like a really good novel you would read, which would really make you start thinking about some, something that is different. They don't come up with anything original. So I, I'm not actually fearful of, you know, they are replacing, you know, being so artificial intelligence will replace humans. So I'm not worried about that. But I am worried about the governance. I, I am worried about, okay, what data is being kind of used to train these models? And I don't know whether this, this thing will come to fruition, but I do think open source in this uh, aspect is actually, you know, much better than maybe some of these closed source uh, proprietary models because, you know, I know even the open source model, you don't always know what is being trained on, but at least you can figure out ways that as these open source models get bigger, that they have some kind of a way to tell you what data sets were used to train them so that you are being compliant from a regulatory perspective, but also in not having biases in that, uh, in that model, right? Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see whether the open source models win out or, you know, whether it becomes more proprietary kind of models that, that wins out. But, but overall, you know, I, I think 
competition between OpenAI and Google and, and Amazon, all of those things are actually good for the industry because when there is more competition, you know, there is always benefit for the end user, which is us and maybe enterprises. And then the final thing I think I will make on the commentary of, you know, uh, whether government should get involved in some of these areas. I'm a little kind of maybe contrarian, uh, like kind of like Europeans. I, I do think that there should be something that the U.S. government is doing to kind of lay the, you know, artificial or AI infrastructure, you know, be it in models, be it in data centers, be it in kind of helping chips being developed. Because kind of like the internet, you know, there is an advantage. Uh, you know, the internet grew out of government funding, right? Um, so there is an advantage of actually priming the pump and providing the government providing some initiatives that helps move this, you know, AI and all the LLMs uh, further along. Yeah, well, so I don't think you're being contrarian there. And I don't know, are Europeans contrarian? I've, I've got this dual uh, culture thing because I lived abroad eight years, married to a Brit. But um, but I will say, I think, well, well let, let, let me ask you. So the EU just um, issued their new AI regulation that will go into effect in two years' time, a, a potential for a 7% fine of your revenues. This is even more than what they did with GDPR. So do you think do you think this is good? Is Europe ahead of the US or no? Is that going to stifle innovation? Yeah, so I think some of the devil is always in the details, right? Is it 7%, but you know, what does it mean that of your revenue as a fine, how 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 much do you have to because you know, big companies will always be at that at that edge, right? They will always be pushing that at the edge. And you know, I, I do think that seven percent seems a whole lot. I think it should be more like the way that GDPR was set up. But on the other hand, look, uh, I will also say that GDPR, everybody thought would like cause all e-commerce to fall away, all these data science. You know, it doesn't hasn't really affected business. People have figured out a way to work around with GDPR. There were opportunities for VCs to invest in companies that help you implement GDPR. So, you know, everything was taken care of. Uh, And I think, uh, of course, there has to be some more iterations to kind of understand whether the fine sense that the EU would impose is reasonable or not. But I do think there's always going to be technology that helps you kind of, you know, meet those regulations. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I want to come back to your um, vision or prediction that generative AI will do away with some of the grunt work, which I love. It's, yes, let's get rid of the boring, repetitive work so that we're free to do more impactful work. Do you have a more precise prediction of certain roles or industries that will be most impacted? You know, I think almost all industries, anything that has knowledge worker will be impacted. Right. Anybody like, you know, it started with legal tech, right? Like, you know, we, there's companies like even up that is focused on personal injury lawyers that is, you know, figuring out things that a paralegal would do. You know, a great example is uh, GitHub Copilot, right? Like, um, you know, a lot of the software development will be, I, I think right now people are just getting better at writing code, but eventually the testing of code, uh, you know, how do you change it to a different language that will be all freed up. Data analytics, right? I think data prep will be affected in a big way. There are already companies 
starting out that are trying to use generative AI or LLMs to actually make the data prep work really, really interesting. You know, and I joke, like, I, we might not need as many associates in our firm. Like, that guy can kind of put all the data into, you know, like a thought spot and get all the answers back immediately. So, yeah, so so I do think anything that is knowledge worker that is, you know, more grunt for repetitive, that's going to be really with unstructured data, that's going to be done. You know, again, in media, right? I think you're going to see a lot of the animation stuff that is done by hand or by computer, you know, like CGI that will probably be automated by mid-journey or some, something like that or by Adobe. The challenge I think is going to be is that, you know, how do you people who are good at that, say if you're an analyst or you're a developer, you get trained by doing this kind of grunt work and repetitive work over time. So you understand how it's working and you get better at it. And then you can really think about the more critical things and then the grunt work can either be done. So I think the challenge is going to be is how do you train these knowledge workers as they're coming up? Like how do you train a programmer? Because you know, if the really good programmers can write all the code and do all the testing, you know, somebody out of college, how do they get good enough to be a developer at ThoughtSpot, right? And I think are good enough to go and, and write, you know, for, for Disney, right? All the animated movies. I think that is something that we haven't thought through and I don't know how we're going to solve that. Yeah, so there's a couple things there. You mentioned the animated movies and in your annual blog, you referred to maybe there would even be a new category at um, the Grammys for yeah. AI-created content. That sounds really, wow. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the next level, right? If you look at a lot of music, a lot of music is sampled and, and you kind of create. And now, you know, a lot of it is, you know, so I, you would look at it and say, why not, right? And that's one of the projects I have over, uh, you know, over Christmas is that I've always wanted to be a DJ, but I never had time to actually do you know mix on a turntable now can i use some some like generative ai product i think google just announced something and and create music so so in yeah. some ways it is good in some ways it is bad right because i think from a developer perspective i think all of us can become developers because it's going to be that we'll just kind of you know in a in a programmatic way say this is what we want the application to do and it will generate the code on the back end. And same thing with music. So, so yeah, so, so I, I do think that you're going to have music which you will not realize whether it's generated by some generative AI program or actually did by, you know, done by humans. Yeah, well, and you mentioned how do we train these developers. So what would be your advice for a data scientist, data professional to make sure that they're reskilling, upskilling for this generative AI era? So I do think that first and foremost, um, you know, schools and places where they are creating or training new data scientists or programmers, they really have to teach the, you know, the new students how to use uh, these generative AI tools, right? I think, you know, my, my uh, older one is a freshman in college. You know, and they, they are not using Copilot. And in my mind, at some point, uh, that, you know, if you want to go into data science or you go into uh, computer science as a programmer, 
you have to know how to use these tools because that's going to be part and parcel of what you do to be a better developer. So, so I would say the universities and training grounds where these scientists and analysts and you know programmers get trained, they kind of have to incorporate all these generative AI tools and not kind of go away from that. And second, I think you know over time people will probably co-pilot and all of these tools will also figure out a way to use them to train these developers, right? Like if you can provide this, you can see how you can have curriculums and things that, you know, you can create a curriculum, okay, for a data scientist, what are the different things you need to do to be a better data scientist, right? And you can basically have maybe your own personalized training coach, teacher, whatever you want to call it, that does, you know, that converses with you, that goes back and kind of looks at how you are kind of completing the solutions like an advanced SAT or, you know, GRE or something like that and basically modify the training as you get trained. So I think those are the things that people have to figure out. And look, there might be a business idea to kind of, you know, teach people how to be data scientists using Copilot. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you mentioned the universities, I would say to date, I have seen the university um, certificate programs or the executive education programs move more quickly than, say, the four-year programs. Even my daughter just did a data science boot camp, and she chose the one that included GPT yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of others didn't have it. So yeah. I think they're moving faster than our higher education and even our primary secondary education. But that's another topic. <laughs> that, is, that would probably take a whole day of discussion of what is yes. you know, wrong with our education system here. Although I will say that U.S. still has probably in the college level, probably one of the best education systems out there. You know, it has its huge problems and everything with what happened, you know, with the testimonies with all the precedents. But but, you know, still, I think the U.S., you know, at the college level provides probably one of the most unique and better uh, kind of you know, education that you get in the world. Yeah, for sure, that we're both lucky to benefit from. So, Jay, I do feel like we could spend all day diving into these topics, but maybe wrap up with a fun prediction for 2024 doesn't have to do anything with data in analytics or AI. I'll sign off by saying that, hey, people will start investing in crypto companies again. Uh, and real, and you know, crypt, you know, if you look at Bitcoin and ETH, they're up like 100%, uh, 2x year over year. I, I think people are, the builders are still building things out there. And there are like really good business model based, you know, companies getting funded versus people just trading on their tokens. So I, I think crypto is here to stay, although, you know, I probably, in some ways with some folks, much more contrarian. Yeah, well, so maybe I should say, so do you think our paychecks will go to crypto in the near future? I don't know if your paychecks will go to crypto, but I think you will have Bitcoin as part of your asset, just like you have stocks, bonds. I think people will own crypto and already are, right? If you look at it, crypto ETS might be on the way and things like that. You know, it will just be another, just like you own gold, right? Some people own gold. It'll be kind of like a store value for sure in people's uh, assets. Um, yeah. I don't know whether you're going to get paid in crypto or ETH. That depends on which, which part of the world you live in. 
I'm, I'm sure there are some economies where getting paid in ETH or, or Bitcoin is probably better than getting paid in that country's currency. Yeah, the local currencies. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being on the Data Chief, but more so, thank you so much for what you've done for the industry across decades now. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Sandy Carter is the Chief Operating Officer of Unstoppable Domains. She is often featured in publications like Forbes and CNN. Hear how data verification and data sharing could impact your everyday life. Sandy, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I'm so excited about this session in particular. Yeah, I am too. You know, you travel the world all the time. I'm convinced we're going to bump into each other in an airport, but tell us where you're joining from today. So today I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I just finished this weekend wrapping trees and Christmas lights. Oh, love it. (laughs) And I have to say congratulations on recently being named Executive Champion of the Year by Women Leaders in Data and AI for your work at Unstoppable Domains. Tell us, you know, you've been a legend in the industry. Even CNN at one point named you one of the most influential women in tech while you were working both at IBM and AWS. Tell us what you think led to the award this year. One, I am known for being an advocate of innovation. And, you know, that's what the whole world is about today, emphasizing the importance of staying ahead of industry trends. Uh, I've also been an expert in AI since 2013. And I know that shocks people because a lot of people think, well, AI just started with ChatGPT. And so I think uh, understanding the history of AI and kind of where it was and where it's come has also been really important. I think my ability to not just have a strategic vision, but also execute on that really falls into that executive champion award. And then finally, I am really committed, uh, Cindy, to diversity and inclusion, especially in the world we live right now with data and AI. This is the time where this focus on uh, innovation through diversity makes all the sense in the world. It really is a business case that you need to have there. Oh, absolutely. And I think, well, two points you just brought up is AI is nothing new. The generative AI is now newly mature, but has also been around for a while. So I think that's great. And then, yeah, we have to we have to get diversity in our world right. Otherwise, we risk having bias at scale. So tell us, Sandy, what is Unstoppable Domains and what do you do there? Yeah, so Unstoppable Domains is a digital identity platform. We're based on blockchain technology, which means that you create your own identity online and it's yours. You own your identity and you own your data. So if you think to the world that we're currently in with Web2, when you log into uh, Google or into X, that username and password is your identity, but it's really not owned by you. It's owned by the platform. We saw this really pop out with uh, with X when Twitter rebranded and Elon Musk just took someone's digital identity, which was X, to make it his. And so really the differentiation is that this digital identity is yours, the data is yours, and the identity is yours as well. At Unstoppable, I am the COO, which means I get to look after everything but engineering. Uh, And so I get to look at, you know, how we're growing the business, how we're marketing the business, how we're taking care of our partners and our customers. 
I think all the really fun stuff I get to watch after. It is a lot of fun stuff. And congratulations on recently being dubbed unicorn status. I know that's a great milestone in any startup's trajectory. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Yes, we uh, were just named a unicorn. We uh, just did our big raise, $65 million um, from Pantera doing the lead and Draper. We're so excited about that. But also we're excited. We won both a Fast Company Award for being one of the big disruptors in the space, as well as a Forbes Award for being a great employee employer to work for as well. Oh, so good. A lot of awards to celebrate there. Now, Sandy, I want to unpack some of what you described in digital identity. And you you also think every person should have their own FT, NFT, correct? I think every person should own their own digital identity. And that digital identity today is represented as an asset that lives on the blockchain or known as an NFT. Okay. And now let's make sure that all Data Chief listeners are on the same page for how you are defining Web 3.0 technologies, because it's a collection of technologies and concepts, and nobody quite agrees on a single definition, but let's hear yours. Yeah. So I think Web 3.0 is an open movement because a lot of it's based on open source, built on blockchain, which is the critical element Uh, blockchain gives it its decentralized kind of look and feel. And what that means is that data is stored as a set of blocks. No one vendor or no one entity has all of those blocks and therefore it's decentralized. No one person controls it. And if you think about Web3, a critical element of Web3 is that digital identity because it enables each person to own their data and their identity. With some of what's been happening with a subcategory of blockchain, the crypto, do you think this has dampened some of the enthusiasm or trust for Web3 technologies? I absolutely do, Cindy. I think with uh, everything happening around crypto, which is one use case of blockchain, I think it's really tainted a big portion of the industry. I think the industry is still strong. I mean, I just was looking out this weekend at jobs in the Fortune 100 companies, and the number of blockchain jobs has actually grown. So while I do think the press have really taken that crypto narrative and tried to really paint the entire industry with it, I think a lot of the big brands understand the differentiation, that that's just one of the use cases. And there are so many other value points of blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. So give us your bold prediction for 2024. Okay. So my bold prediction is that there will be an intersection of AI privacy and blockchain technology that will be poised to reshape the entire landscape of proof of ownership and therefore also revolutionize data sharing practices. I know that's a lot, but I really do believe that um, we will go and move into a decentralized proof of ownership because of the increasing use of Gen AI and the fear of deep fakes. I think these two will have to come together to give us enhanced privacy measures. Well, I think this sounds like a solid prediction. I know a little bit this has been shaped by a personal experience that you encountered in Brazil. Why don't you take us back through that? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating. So what all this means is that you can store information about yourself, right? Because you own that data. And one of the things you could store is you could store healthcare records, you could store um, your driver's license. In California, they're storing titles of your cars. So I was actually in Brazil to close a very large deal, in fact, the largest deal in Latin America. And unfortunately, as we were celebrating, I was up on a platform The CIO had walked inside of the restaurant to get us some drinks with a business partner, and the entire platform collapsed. I fell 16 feet uh, onto the ground and broke everything on my left side, but probably most importantly, my femur. Now, the femur is one of the largest bones in your body. I think it is the largest, actually. And um, I was laying on the concrete. I still remember it to this day, uh, laying on the concrete for four hours, waiting for the ambulance. When I got to the hospital, they said I needed immediate surgery, Um, obviously for lots of things, but in more in particular, the femur, because the femur also could have uh, blood vessel issues. Unfortunately, though, they needed my records, my healthcare records. And Cindy, I couldn't get them down to Brazil fast enough. So obviously, I was in no shape to call all these doctors, but my husband was, and he started calling multiple doctors. They needed so many records. It took 48 hours to get that information down to where we were. So imagine if we had had all that information in my digital identity, I could have immediately shared that with a doctor and gone into surgery almost 48 hours earlier than I actually did. I think this is going to impact us not just in healthcare, but in the way that we perform our lives uh, overall. Yeah. Wow, Sandy. So so you go from pure joy celebration to now a life a life threatening situation and yet it's data and lack of sharing of the data that prevents the emer- emergency surgery so you painting a picture of you being able to say here's all the data i need is really a hopeful picture what's stopping us from getting there Well, I think we're already seeing strides to get some data into digital identity. Like today, you can find your uh, stance on um, issues like climate change. I know we just had a big climate change uh, seminar in Dubai with all of the heads of state. You can now show your support inside your digital identity. You can show classes that you've taken and prove that you actually have a diploma, for example. I think that healthcare has a lot of challenges because of the HIPAA regulations. So I think it's going to take us a little bit longer to get there, although I am hopeful. I just met with 100 startups in New York City. They're all uh, focused on healthcare and blockchain. And so I think they're all working out how this new movement could happen, because not only could it help you in Brazil, uh, but one of the doctors I met with said most diagnosis, 64% of misdiagnosis are caused by the doctor not having access to all of your records. So in his mind, him getting all of that information helps make him a better doctor and a better outcome for us as well. Yeah. And it's interesting, Sandy, that you refer to HIPAA regulation because really right now, I think the doctors feel like they own our data. And even if you had had this accident in the U.S., getting your medical records, say, from Arizona to New Jersey, it's acrobats. 
at best. I completely agree. And you are right. I recently um, moved here to take care of a family member. And I was just trying to get my data sent down from Seattle because I used to work for Amazon and I was living in Seattle. And you would be surprised at how many people would say, well, this is our data. We have to transfer it to another hospital. We have to transfer it to another day, a doctor. I'm like, no, this is my data. Like, this is about me. This is some of the most personal things about me. This should be my data. It shouldn't be your data. Yeah, it should be your data. It should be the patient data. So I think this is a combination of habit, legacy processes. The doctors think they own it. But there also is money to be made because a lot of doctors and insurers use that data, anonymized and aggregated, but huge revenue streams. So is that the other thing that stands in the way of actually implementing this new way of sharing data? You know, it is. And in fact, it's not just in healthcare. If we look at Meta, X, Facebook and Google, they said that they made $100 billion off of selling our data this year. $100 billion doesn't go away like that. So yes, this is one of the inhibitors too, which is how do platform players make money if the data is now Cindy's and Sandy's? How do they make money? Because now the opportunity for value and value creation comes to you and I, not just the big platform players. Yeah, and that's where you referred to regulation, and yet I think, well, HIPAA is all about maintaining my privacy, your privacy as the patient. And so I think regulation is often used as an excuse to not innovate. And I recently heard the former head of the FDA speak at an event at the New York Stock Exchange, and he said his fear is that we as a country will move too slowly to embrace all the value of generative AI that's possible to revolutionize the healthcare, lower the cost, make it more predictive rather than reactive. Do you agree or disagree with his comment? I agree, although I do find that there are, you know, um, I'm a big proponent of responsible AI. I just got named one of the top 10 leaders in responsible AI. And so I, I, I do have two, I have like hope for what's happening and also concerns. So let's say that we got on generative AI and let's say a mother was trying to take care of her child and she got some information that was wrong. Who is now responsible for that? Um, and so I do think, I think we have a long way to go here, right? And I think this is why this is one of my projections for 2024 is how we share the data, um, the dynamic interplay of these technologies to enhance security and transparency, yet empower individuals with that control over their digital footprint. It's that balancing act that I think we have to really take on in 2024 so that we don't block innovation, but that we do provide the right protection where it's needed. Yeah. And so this method of sharing data is also at the crux of your prediction. And a number of cloud data platform providers have been early to, let's say, data sharing capabilities. Snowflake is one with the concept of their clean rooms. More recently, AWS released some new capabilities around data sharing. There's different ways to do this. Blockchain is just one way, but a very different way than what some of the cloud 
data platforms are putting forward. What do you think? Why do we have these differences? Is one better than the other? Or what do you think? I'm a big proponent of blockchain, but it's not to say that data sharing can't occur in another way. But I'm not just talking about data sharing. I'm actually talking about data ownership. And I think that's where the difference is, right? So even when you send data up to a cloud, if you want to pull that data back down, you actually have to pay to pull the data back down. So that tells me that I don't actually own it. Someone else owns it because I have to ask permission and pay to get the data back down. So in my mind, it's really about who owns the data. And I think today the best technology for ownership of data, um, you know, who owns the data, proving who owns the data, I think that today is blockchain. Okay, cool. The other thing that you have as an element is this trust verification and telling when something is real or fake and this issue of new deep fakes coming out. Tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, well, I found it really fascinating. Um, You know, the Pope was seen in a puffer jacket, supposedly. Someone took a picture and posted it. It went viral, like 2.5 million people were liking his picture. Thought it was so cool that the Pope was wearing a puffer. Well, then it turned out the statement was made that the picture was fake. It was a deep fake created by artificial intelligence. And I think that was one of the first times people were taken aback that they had believe so deeply and commented and shared out that picture when in reality, it was not real. And so here's where I see, again, this intersection of artificial intelligence and blockchain. Blockchain would be able to provide a certification, just like you have a, maybe you have a blue check today on X, or you have a way to verify. You can do that with the blockchain. So the Pope could have verified that picture, Um, And we could prove that with the chain, with the way the blockchain is set up. So for me, I think that we have to have a way to not only look at kind of public data and private data, but synthetic data, which we know AI is creating today, but also this proof of fact. Like, how do I know that this is really true? How do I know that Cindy said this? How do I know that the Pope was wearing a puffer jacket? And I think a lot of that could be solved with the technology that is inherent in blockchain today. Yeah, so the technology is ready. We have some people, process, regulation, financial incentives to figure out. But bring it, so this accident that formed your prediction happened just over a year ago. Uh, Do we have a happy ending here, Sandy? Like, how's your leg now? Are you willing to share that? I am doing better. I'm still, I'm still hobbling around a bit, but taking PT. So we will have a, I predict, I predict we will have a very happy ending here as well, for sure. Okay, good. And I feel like we should talk about a fun story. You recently wrote one of the top articles on Forbes about Taylor Swift and Web 3.0. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of the things that I always find fascinating is how freaking successful Taylor Swift is. And um, she is using a lot of the concepts, a lot of the the basics ethos of Web3. So, for example, she cut out the middleman and she broke into the industry of of making movies. Uh, Instead of having somebody or lots of people take a portion of that movie, she went direct and was able to... um, to 
foresee that value to her. She got a 57% cut of that revenue, which would have normally gone to a distributor. Look at the way that she uses and leverages her fans, not uses, but I would say really, um, you know, she has this moment for creators and fans. No one can forget, you know, how she treats her fans as a community, as a group of people who impact and influence who, what she is. So Taylor Swift is a master user of all the Web3 principles that we view in the ethos there. Plus, she's just a phenomenal business leader. She is. Great, great musician, singer, business person. And I love that analogy. Well, Sandy, I don't know if we can get more fun than that, but do you want to end us off with a fun prediction in 2024? I predict in 2024 that I'll take my most exotic bucket list trip ever. And I would like to visit Africa and really take in a safari, an African safari. So I just envision that really uh, happening here in 2024. Now I hope my husband listens in and makes that a reality. Oh, I love that. If if he's not a regular listener, we're going to back channel and send him this episode. And then we're going to be watching your Twitter stream for pictures of you on that safari. Sandy, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy. It was a pleasure. Prab Prachandi is the global head of analytics and insights at TCS. He says data is not a problem. The financial sector is inundated with data. What needs to happen in the industry is a move towards actionable insights, and AI will power that journey. Prab, welcome to the Data Chief. Hello, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be here. And where is here? Where in the world are you joining us from today? Well, I'm in London today, and I'm in one of the tallest buildings in London, rather the tallest build platform to see London. I'm in the 45th floor, and behind me I have a beautiful view of the entire London. You can, you can actually see the entire 360 degree view of London from our office. So it's a great, great place to be here. Oh, okay. So you're going to have to snap a picture afterwards and we'll share it so that people can travel vicariously through you. I'm actually joining you from Times Square today. So th this is a first time with the data chief. Now, Prab, you've been with Tata Consulting Services for years or short for Tata. I mean, huge, one of the largest SIs in the world, 500,000 consultants globally working on a range of projects. Tell us about your role. I've been with TCS, the Tata Consultancy Services, for nearly 30 years. And uh, I've gone through various stages. I've started as a programmer at a business consulting. And now I head the data and analytics division for banking, financial services, and insurance. We call it as a A and I analytics and insights unit. I love the title of this unit. And, and I would say your career trajectory reflects how I see the industry that now is the time for data. It's the defining decade for data and probably the defining time for your career. So that's awesome. And you focus mainly on banking and financial services. What do you see as the key innovations unlocking value from data in this sector? I've been in, in the industry for 30 years, as I mentioned, and I've seen a tremendous change that is happening. What I see as, as something unique that is happening today is how uh, businesses start using the data 
to create an edge uh, for themselves, uh, creating an edge in decision making or creating the edge um, in helping to redefine businesses or even creating an edge by way of leveraging alternate data. Uh, I have an interesting analogy. Uh, I love cricket. If you go back in time in 2018, in India, we have uh, uh, the Indian Premier Cricket, Cricket League called IPL. There are quite a lot okay. of teams that play um, IPL. Uh, one of the team, which is my home team, uh, my favorite team back in, back in India is uh, CSK called as Chennai Super Kings. In 2018 auction, uh, CSK team picked lots of older players over the age of 35, uh, which is obviously against the intuition and completely different to the strategy that other uh, teams had employed. Uh, the result was great. Uh, CSK won the IPL Cup in 2018. But what uh, drove them into that strategy was data and analytics. Analyzing various different conditions, analyzing performance of players, analyzing the strength of potential uh, opponents, analyzing behavioral traits. Uh, all those things came together to help them in choosing the right players. And obviously, you can't take away the credit from the team or the captain, but data added those small values. So we are at the very junction. It was a perfect intersection of cricket, economics, and data. I think we are, we are also in a similar state. What is happening in the industry is similar. A perfect intersection, intersection of business, technology, and data, and thus creating that added value enabled through data. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that memory or that history, your love of cricket. I think sports and data, sports data and chocolate are kind of like my winning combination. If we think about in financial services, how, how this also translates in cricket, you have teams not leveraging data, falling behind, <laughs> and then you have your team, CSK, leveraging data. And I look at the extreme innovators in our space. Capital One, for example, very, very early to cloud. And then there are those digital uh, startups, digital banks, Afterpay, for example. But we have a lot of slow-moving financial services and insurance organizations who even now in 2024 are still not fully in the cloud, some are still saying never in the cloud. How does this hold them back? Or why do we have these two extremes? If you look at uh, how some of the banks think today is, how do I create value? How do I leverage some of the advancement in technologies? At the same time, how do I manage the regulators? The one difference between other industries and financial services is a highly regulated entities. And so it is very imperative upon them to ensure that they have the right strategies in place. When the whole cloud journey started, uh, financial services were initially a bit reluctant. Uh, so at least some of them were a bit reluctant, uh, given uh, they, were, they were concerned about the potential uh, privacy, data privacy, when moving data onto cloud. So the, the financial services started a bit slow compared to, let's say, the retail firms. Uh, who were using cloud and, uh, and more uh, advancement technologies much more. But later, as time progressed, what I have seen is both in, in US as well as UK, Europe, and the rest of the world, and the financial services 
started adopting cloud in a in a big way. They all started uh, by using them for creating analytics, by using them for creating data science models. Then they looked at how we can use the power of the hardware that the cloud can provide in terms of the computing power, how we can use them for huge calculations, the likes of uh, risk calculations and also pre- uh, pricing and valuation purposes. Uh, so wherein you can use those type of um, computing power without actually storing data in cloud. So, so they started looking at how can we leverage the power of cloud without actually with, without actually putting too much of uh, what they perceived as risk on, on, onto the cloud. But later, there has been a lot more advancement even in the cloud technologies in ter- on how the data is protected, how the privacy is protected, the data is ring-fenced. And so right now, the, the financial, I see the financial services, at least most of them, are more comfortable in moving uh, the data uh, onto cloud. While having said that, they also have a clear strategy in terms of categorizing the data across various different sensitivity level and making a call on what kind of sensitive, sensitive data can go and what they still want to uh, keep in on-prem. Still, some of the banks are very much of a laggard in adopting uh, these cloud technologies. And the only reason that uh, I can think of is is much more risk-averse approach that uh, they have today. And even those uh, banks and insurance are starting to look at data which is uh, whereby they can exchange information across ecosystem, where it creates edge for, for, for them, but creates competitive value for them. For example, uh, if you can combine uh, your banking insights with uh, insights from retail firm or insights from other transportation firm, if you're able to create that ecosystem, then actually it creates more value or bank and insurance coming together. So wherever there is, a, there is that level of value that the banks can create uh, or the insurance can create, they are more amenable to go uh, to, to, even the banks which are leg out are starting to go in that direction. In the future, I believe, given the advancement technology, given the advancement to the power, given the advancement gen AI and AI, I think it's imperative for uh, most of them uh, to have uh, cloud in the strategy. Yeah, I agree it's imperative. Otherwise, they will fall further and further behind. I love this idea of, well, the ecosystem and data sharing. It really gives a competitive moat. We even had, um, let's say, a, a full digital bank uh, from Singapore on. And the work that they can do is so much more advanced than those that are still tethered to large on-premises data stores, legacy code. But you also referred to risk. And so I wonder, given that the insurance sector understands risk so, so well, I would say when I think of the large insurers, they have been earlier to some of these innovations, including generative AI, including cloud. Do you think that is because they understand risk more fine-grained? Or do you even agree? What's your view from your customer base? Have they been earlier? Both banks as well as insurance, uh, their main business is take risk, underwrite risk, mitigate risk. So uh, that's their business model. They are very careful in terms of uh, how they uh, manage uh, risk. That's one reason. Other reason is uh, they are a, a highly regulated uh, firms. 
and so it is important for them to ensure that their regulatory compliance are very well taken care and also the risks that are pursued with the regulators are addressed and fully complied with the law of the land and the law of the land itself is, is evolving as well uh, unlike other industries and so all these factors put together is why i feel that they uh, beat on adoption of general ai and uh, other technologies or beat on adoption of cloud they have taken uh, a very a cautious uh, approach having said that they now they are not laggards at all compared to when it all started a few years back so at that point in time normally investment banks uh, especially investment banks they are all leaders in technology uh, some of our clients calls themselves a technology firm with a banking licenses but at some point during the cloud days uh, it just went um, the adoption of those technologies was slow because of the reasons that we are discussing both risk and regulatory reasons but now they are not now they are no longer laggards all our clients are marching ahead on cloud as well as on using ai and, and generative ai and they are using it in a way that it helps them in both the business growth helps them in efficiencies while at the same time managing the regulatory compliance in the most appropriate manner what i mean by that is where they apply a certain technology it depends on what is the risk composition of that applying uh, ai and ml into uh, more of risk uh, management area uh, you have to be careful about it because explainability is important and if regulators ask a question are you able to really explain the lineage of those decisions that are being made uh, and so the application of that has to be very cautious as against doing a sales and marketing uh, wherein you can apply it uh, as long as you are taking care of ethical uh, use of data and responsible ai so that you don't discriminate any of uh, the customers in any wrong way as long as you are able to take care of that you, you the, the firms can apply a bit more positively and aggressively on those kind of uh, functional areas and so yes it's it's a it's it's a risk based approach in terms of making a call on where to use more aggressively versus where to contain and make a take a cautious approach right so prob uh, we've talked about the industry give us a bold prediction for 2024 no more information no more even insights but only actionable insights if a financial firm and i believe most of the financial firms are looking to become a truly data driven then focus on actionable insights on every dollar uh, that are being spent if i have to um, unpack this a bit uh, information helps us to observe whereas insights helps to understand why insights are fundamentally problem centric they shine a light on the current situation and explain why that situation is like that actionable insights are conclusions from the data and provides the right impetus uh, for action right. let's just uh, take some few examples on it credit decisions uh, if you look at the credit decisions information provides a view on the credit credit characteristics of customers their profile their transaction profile their credit ratings whereas insights provide a view of their behavioral traits the transactional insights their uh, repayment characteristics uh, even provide a segmentation level view and some peer analysis as well now moving on to actionable insights it provides a view about 
whether to take this risk or not. Number one. Number two is if you decide to take the risk, what kind of a mitigation mechanism that you need to employ? Should you look for a different kind of a collateral or how much you can underwrite? Uh, and what's the rationale for each of these decisions? In my conversations with uh, many of the CDOs, one question keep prop, uh, popping up. How do I create business case for transforming my data estate? Because you need to have a modernized data estate to be able to create insights, to be able to create actionable insights, to be able to create value. But it's like a chicken and egg situation. But then you, how do I get the investments uh, to do that? This actionable insights is that link to justify uh, such uh, business cases. An example of that is one of our customers has been looking to modernize their uh, derivatives warehouse. Uh, derivative is, uh, is a financial product in the market side. So they've been wanting to create derivatives warehouse. They want, they've been wanting to create risk warehouse. But how do you build the cat in terms of how do you go about creating the business case for that? And one of the actionable insights that the front office teams were looking for is to help in their hedging strategies. How do I look at a short-term uh, horizon hedging for an OTC derivative portfolio? And what kind of ins actionable insights that you can provide? What kind of a hedging strategy that can apply for a different kind of scenarios and situations? So if you're able to provide that have that actionable insight in mind or the outcome in mind, you're able to help create the business case to transform your data estate and also move towards the data-driven organizations. I think that is what I would say as a prediction for the next year where maximum investments would go. Now, to do this, you need to know the context, you need to know relevance, you need to be able to adapt to the situation, or in other words, you should be able to get feedback and learn, uh, the, the system should be able to learn, you should be able to do proper simulations, AI, Gen AI, machine learning, and uh, we are probably talking about AI, Gen AI, but other traditional analytics as well uh, provide the power to do understand the context. Gen AI helps understand the context more. Uh, machine learning helps in uh, better simulations. So a combination of all this is, is going to help in moving this needle towards um, moving towards a more actionable uh, insights. Well, I would love to see us embrace more actionable insights. It sounds like you're also saying that this forces an alignment to value rather than collecting data for data's sake. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Banks are inundated with data. Um, yes. Uh, one of the study, I think a couple of years back, mentioned that 90% of the data has been created in the last one year. 90% of the data available in the world has been created in the last one year. What it says is the amount of data that's being created because of various devices and because of advancements in different areas is huge. And every year, the, the amount of data is actually increasing. So data is there, and data is a, a good reflection of the business. In, I could say data is really a, a good digital twin of your business. So that itself is not a value unless you're able to convert this data to insights and then convert the insights to an actionable insights, in other words, actions, then you start to uh, create value out of it. Yeah. I mean, at that point, data is just a cost. Well, it has been a pleasure having you on The Data Chief. 
Let's wrap up with a fun prediction. I'm having a feeling it's going to be related to cricket in the next year, but give us a fun prediction. Well,、uh, I was thinking about cricket when you, when you asked this question, but I'm going to say、um, something different. Formula One.、Uh, ah. The fun prediction would be <laughs> is Formula AI One racing. <laughs> What I mean by that is、uh, instead of a driver sitting in the actual car. Uh, you could the drivers should could be sitting in the pits and driving the car,、uh, or probably completely autonomous. So Formula One racing moving to Formula AI one racing could be a fun prediction for some nearby future. Yeah, in the near future, I think Elon Musk would、uh, back that for sure. <laughs> Prab, thank you so much for being on the Data Chief. It's my pleasure and nice talking to you as well. Thank you. AI is happening. And all three of our guests bring unique perspectives on how the technology can be further embraced in the areas surrounding AI, from verification to regulation to education that will also need to change. So, what do you think? How do you think AI will become part of your everyday life? What industries do you see emerging from widespread AI adoption? Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at thoughtspot.com.